morning, everybody. Um, thank you for being a part of our class, and glad that you guys are finding this uh, valuable, hopefully. Uh, we continue to talk about the Syrian refugee crisis primarily, but we want to focus overall, just big picture, about how to, how to think about this through a, through a, a Christ-centered lens. Um, I'm, I continue to be amazed at how much simpler the conversation is when we focus on um, on the the notion that refugee is a uh, as a political term, it's it's a status that is gained by a person who has fled their country due to violence or some other form of persecution. And so, I would really continue to encourage you, whether it's with friends or family, or when you get involved in those politically charged conversations about immigration, um, it's really critical as a as a disciple to to narrow down the conversation to to the term refugee as it is a political or a, um, a term that is given specifically by, by an international body. I want to talk this morning about the notion of not being afraid. As you, as you get into this conversation, there are so many things that our flesh tends to be afraid of, and there are legitimate concerns when it comes to this, uh, this topic. And so as we broach the subject with, with folks and friends, and like I said, and people of in our circle of influence, um, it's, it's really easy to get drug off the right path into a conversation that is really, really difficult. But, uh, and why? Because we all tend to believe things um, that are just floating out there. And as I mentioned uh, several times now in class, 12% of evangelicals uh, from, a, from polls are saying that they understand the, the, the immigration issues through media. Uh, the, uh, sorry, only 12% are understanding it through the lens of the Bible, and the rest are gaining it through through media. And so we're really misinformed a lot on a lot of fronts. And um, there is a lot of propaganda. There are a lot of fear-mongering sort of sources out there that would have us believe, um, you know, untruths or half-truths about uh, what's really happening in the refugee crisis around the world. This video I want to show, um, it's 20 minutes long, and I'll send you the link. Um, so you can maybe look at the whole thing if you wish, but I'm going to show you the first minute and a half or so to give you a, an example of the kinds of things that are out there on the internet. And I remember the first time I saw this on Facebook, just immediately being able to detect that something wasn't quite, quite right about this. So they've mingled actual footage of refugees and ref the refugee crisis and, and really a lot of the, um, the chaos that ensued from from a five-year civil war. And so there's truths to it, but as I said, it's mingled with all this crazy thing, crazy things that help you detect that it's false. But unfortunately, there's only 12% of the folks who are, are, are kind of coming at this subject through a biblical lens, and other people, a lot of times, a lot of us, are feeding on what's being offered to us through media. So I'll share this. If you're coming in uh, late, this is a propaganda video, and so I, I don't want you to—I <laughs> don't want you to think that we're sharing this uh, in in all honesty. So check this out and um, and see if you can understand what a propaganda artist might be using, what what tactics they might be employing to uh, convince you. I hope it plays.
Germany is facing a drastic number of refugees by the end of 2015, believed to be in the region of 1.5 million. It is not quite on a biblical scale, but an exodus it certainly is. Migrants who've been trapped at the railway station in Budapest now deciding to walk the hundreds of miles to Germany and what they see as the promised land. The other side of this tragedy is how it will change Europe. Non-Western migrants had already been flooding into Europe for decades. Leaders refused to stop. We are afraid. We are in danger every day, every minute. They come inside and They want to kill each other. Okay, so you can see, uh, hopefully. That's, it, that's, that's the only part of that video I've seen. Yeah. That was probably one of the five main people who clicked on it. Yeah. Yeah, it went viral. Um, it, it was, um, you know, many millions and millions of views. And so uh, hopefully a, a large number of people uh, debunked that or checked Snopes.com or just did a little research. But uh, I remember seeing some of my friends comment on this video on Facebook. And unfortunately, they were sucked into the propaganda and fell for it, as as many folks do with with propaganda. Um, so this morning, we're talking about a very biblical notion, that, uh, one that is just repeated over and over and over again for for Christ followers and f anyone from the Judeo-Christian heritage. It's do not be afraid. Um, there are so many voices out there that wish. That, that will sort of take up that fear uh, and, and our decisions then will be guided by that fear. And so we'll talk a little bit about this, uh, about sort of the main um, angles that, that fear-mongering folks might take. And so Roger will cover a couple, I'll cover a couple, but we wanna to continue to raise awareness, cultivate compassion. In the end of this class, we'll train volunteers and we hope that all of you will be mobilized in Nashville to care for refugee families uh, despite all the things that folks might tell you about refugees, right? And so we want to work on that this morning, and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll gain um, some insight. So, uh, you know, as I said, the conversation becomes so much more um, approachable and easy, to tell you the truth, when you understand this diagram that Roger created for us. It's so simple. We're not talking about illegal immigration. Now, we could have a, a great discussion, and I think many of these uh, things, particularly do not be afraid, would apply even to that conversation. But uh, in terms of this particular slice of the puzzle, it's a really straightforward conversation, particularly for, for, for Jesus people, because um, we're talking about 
inside of accepted American policy, inside of accepted international law. So we're really, we're really stripping away a lot of the more difficult conversations which have to do with illegal immigration. We're talking about legal immigrants. Either, these are folks who even by our own government have been granted certain rights and certain permissions and certain freedoms. Uh, in fact, being resettled as a refugee means that they are on a path to citizenship uh, as agreed upon by our government. So uh, I wanna keep focusing on that, that fact. So as I said, we're gonna cover about four um, you know, key fears that politicians or media outlets or folks in general would tend to, would tend to exploit, I guess, in order to, uh, for whatever reason, uh, political, economic, or otherwise, uh, to kind of sway you against a re a refugees and immigration reform in the U.S. So I wanted to begin by just um, bringing to your attention an article that came out in Christianity Today just this past Friday. Joy uh, is talking about um, the, the majority opinion among evangelicals with respect to refugees and how much uh, so much of what we believe is, is, I might even say tainted, you know, by the media, tainted by, by various, and in, in essence, Reality for each one of us is our perspective, right? So I do appreciate what is uh, undoubtedly the number one evangelical magazine, uh, periodical uh, Christianity Today, pushing, uh, the, pushing uh, the fact that we as Christians need to be taking care of refugees. We need to be looking at this from a biblical perspective. And so here's this article, 1,180 churches are helping world relief to resettle refugees at a record rate. An excellent article that I believe was put out by, uh, not put out by Stetzer, but Ed Stetzer is quoted a number of times in that particular article. And so we'll put that in the class notes so that you can go in and take a look at that. But, um, a couple of weeks ago we did mention that the second most iterated command in all of the Old Testament is what? Do you remember? A, a more specific version of loving your neighbor. Welcoming the stranger. Uh, taking care of the foreigner. And it was specifically addressed at, at in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel because they had been in that situation, right? But that was the second most iterated command in just the Old Testament. What do you think the most iterated, repeated command in all of the Bible is? Don't fear. Dwayne's already said, don't be afraid, fear not. Some uh, uh, 200 times, over 200 times, be not afraid is, is talked about in, in the Bible. Um, and now, one of the, uh, to me, one of the, uh, a central idea with respect to the Bible is what we call faith. And I, I sort of grew up thinking that the, that the term, I would interchange, uh, synonymize the term belief with faith. And oftentimes when we ask someone, what is your faith, we're talking about their belief system, right? But I, I believe in much more 
scriptural way of defining the term faith is trust. It's about what we put our trust in. And so that's, that's really where we're going today is uh, uh, talking about this biblical definition of faith being where we place our trust, in whom we place our trust. And you know, what does that, how does that affect our day-to-day -day lives with respect to things like migration, immigration, uh, refugees, etc. So to begin with, um, uh, let's talk a little bit, four as Joanne mentioned, four different uh, objections, concerns that we tend to hear about. There are others, but these are, are four that sort of came to the top for, for us. Um, with, any, with the refugee resettlement program, and, and in particular with the Syrian refugees, especially in, this, in the rhetoric, rhetoric we hear um, in this particular election year. Uh, this became a, a huge issue for us as Americans post 9-11, right? Uh, with many Americans becoming very, very concerned that terrorists would infiltrate the refugee resettlement program. Uh, and then just last year with the attack in Paris, where it initially came out that one of those terrorists was a, a Syrian and thought to possibly be one of the refugees. Anybody know any further information on that? That, that turned out to not be true. That was a fake ID. The person was not Syrian to start with. It was not part of the refugee program. And even so, uh, with uh, what we're seeing in Europe, it is a very, very different situation than what we have in the U.S. where all of our refugees are vetted. Um, you know, um, a couple of weeks ago, Dwayne talked about uh, this screening process, the vetting process, that every refugee has to go through and how many different agencies, UN agencies and then US agencies among those that are selected to come here before they can come here. And there was an excellent, excellent um, uh, piece on 60 Minutes two weeks ago about this process, the refugee process, and about uh, Syrian refugees in particular. And it's about a 15 minute piece and again I will uh, I'll, I'll provide the link in the, in the class notes, but I wanted to uh, show you part, a cu couple of little uh, minute and a half segments that were uh, a part of this, because it, I think it explains it much better than. Sixty minutes, moment of the week. Yep. Every single refugee is interviewed in detail multiple times by the UN for their vital statistics, where they came from, who they know, their irises are scanned to establish their identity, and then they wait for the chance the UN might refer them to the United States. Less than 1% will get that chance. For that 1%, the next step is the State Department Resettlement Center in Amman for a background check led by specially trained Department of Homeland Security interrogators. Like all Syrian refugees being vetted, this family was questioned at least three times by interviewers looking for gaps or inconsistencies in their stories. All that information is then run through U.S. security databases for any red flags. To be a refugee in Jordan is to be patient. The U.S. security check goes on an average of 18 to 24 months. Those who pass 
are told to pack up for their new life in the United States. This family had just been told they're moving to Chicago, Illinois. What are you feeling right now? I'm afraid we don't know anything. Just before they go, they're given a crash course on life in the U.S. America 101. English, education, or experience. Most know little about where they're moving. Those we spoke to didn't really care. They know exactly what they're leaving behind. That's why I queued them up ahead of time so we wouldn't have to watch the Viagra commercials, hopefully. Can you walk me through it? How does it go? How does it start? How do you guess? Uh, first, um, a refugee encounters the, the UN, UN High Commissioner of Refugees. Um, UNHCR goes through their vetting process. Uh, they identify any red flags, and then they will make a referral to a particular country where they think the refugee would be good for resettlement. Over to our State Department. Our State Department does an interview, does a background check, uh, vets the refugee, uh, develops a file. If there are any particular security flags or concerns, uh, we add extra checks to the process at that point. Uh, the vetting encompasses multiple agencies of the United States government, including our intelligence community, our law enforcement community, uh, various different databases that exist here in the Department of Homeland Security. And if the refugee gets to that point, over to the Department of Homeland Security, this department, for an additional interview, additional vetting, additional screening, and we will either approve or decline the application. If the refugee and his or her family is approved, then we go through a medical vetting uh, by a, a, a team of doctors, uh, and then, last but not least, uh, the resettlement and that involves screening by our customs personnel when the refugee arrives in the country. So it's quite thorough and it's multi-layered. So let's think about this from the standpoint of a terrorist. <laughs> Some 85,000 or so um, um, refugees were resettled this past fiscal year in the U.S. Uh, this upcoming fiscal year, uh, President Obama has signed into legislation an increase in that number to 110,000. And among those refugees, you see they go through at least an 18-month, more likely a two- to three-month vetting process with all of these different departments. So if I were a terrorist wanting to come into the U.S., do you think that's the route that I'm going to take? Yeah. Especially when you think about that there are 70 million visitors to the U.S. every year with almost no vetting whatsoever. So is the refugee program what we need to be concerned about when it comes to uh, terrorists? Yeah, David. I think the, the video that Duane showed us the, the phrase 
face that stuck out with me was it's going to change Europe. And I think that that's what, at least the rhetoric that I hear of my viewer, <coughs> it's the change. Yeah. And I know we're looking at the four different ways that, you know, that fear, that word change causes fear. Right. Because Absolutely. we don't know what it's going to look like. And, and so I, I think we, I, I could say that logically to that person, that this is, that this is not the way the terrorist would work. Yep. But in their mind, something needs to be done. And that, that's why this is important for us, for us to have this educational process, right? So that we can be the seeds of, of starting to spread different kinds of information about, you know, change is inevitable. Do we need to, f to fear that change or not? And uh, to plant those seeds of, of trust rather than of fear. Oh, so. Yeah, that's all good. So yeah, it's, that's, that's important. It's, it's something that we certainly need to be doing our part to, to try and minimize. But even if the chances were much higher, say we could, well, first of all, um, let me, do, does anyone know if we've ever had any terrorists to come through our refugee resettlement program? No one who has ever acted. We have arrested, I believe, three people who we suspected of terrorist activities that did come through, but no one has ever acted on that. In fact, 70% of all terrorist activity that's taken place in the U.S. has been by U.S. citizens. So that's, that's much bigger concern. Would it yeah. conceivably be possible that they were refugees and then became Very much so, very much so. And that's why we have to be concerned about our attitude toward refugees as well, right? If we accept them, how much more are they going to like us and our way of life than if we are, are, are rejecting them? So. Uh, but even if all of that weren't true, so let, let's say that the chances of terrorists coming in through this program were, were much higher, that it was a much, much more legitimate concern. Does that change the way we as Christians should be viewing it? Does that change our mandate to, uh, to welcome the stranger. Because even if the chances were higher, we still know that 99.9999% of, of everyone who's coming would never ever uh, uh, commit any of those acts of terrorism. And so does it make sense to turn away all of the needy people just because of the chance of what might happen? Again, from a from a Christian perspective. Yeah. Uh, the other topic I wanted to spend just a few minutes talking about is economic concerns. Do we have legitimate concerns with uh, refugees coming in? Really, this, this topic does broaden out to the entire documented immigrants as well as undocumented immigrants. Do we have legitimate economic concerns? Are immigrants an economic drain on, on this country, on our economy? Is there a net cost to our national economy? Almost universally, economists believe that immigrants provide a net positive impact on the economy. And again, that's, that's so contrary to what, what we're hearing. Now, a big part of that is because that immigrants are just like you and me, consumers. They consume products. They are paying rent, 
they're paying on a mortgage, they're buying food, you know, they're buying cars, cell phones, and just like you and I are doing. And that purchasing power is what leads to in increased profits for American businesses. And it generates further employment. Uh, most economists also agree that the average uh, uh, American-born worker actually sees their wages positively impacted by immigrants. And so much of that is, is because immigrants tend to work in fields that complement U.S.-born uh, workers uh, rather than compete with. And so overall, it does seem to be even among undocumented and illegal immigrants is uh, actually contributing to our, uh, uh, to increasing our economy. Uh, multiple stu studies have shown that the uh, average immigrant in the U.S. pays way more in taxes than they receive in benefits. I would have never, I don't think I've ever heard that in the media. I had to go searching for that, that type of information. Most refugees, when we narrow it back down to just the set of refugees, most refugees are working. In fact, refugee men are more likely to be employed than U.S. citizen men. And the rate is roughly the same for, uh, uh, between women, refugee women and U.S. citizen women are, are, are just as likely to be employed. Um, three of our most uh, recognized high-tech companies were all founded or co-founded by immigrants. Um, between uh, Google, Sun Microsystems, and, and Yahoo. So we think about the impact that that has to our economy and our very way of life. Uh, this, is, this is coming from foreign-born uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, Did you hear that of the seven yeah. Americans who won Nobel Prizes, Bob Dylan was the only one who wasn't an immigrant? No, I did not hear that. <laughs> I had a different statistic that between 1990 and 2004, over one-third of U.S. scientists who received Nobel Prizes were foreign-born. So, yes? In the Smithsonian Magazine, Jerry showed me uh, that one Jewish refugee from France during World War II was the creator of Curious George. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. yeah. And you just, you think about what our nation was founded upon, the diversity that, that, that really has made us who we are, the melting pot. And that's, that's where it gets back to why have we reached this point where we fear change? I mean, that's, that is, is what fuels our being the, the, the people that we are. And so it's, you know, these, we, we talked about the millions of refugees that, from Syria that have fled into Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan, and certainly it's made a huge impact upon those countries trying to, to take care of, uh, of those refugees. But all three of those countries have seen their national economies grow at the fastest rate that they have in many years. So. In Germany, you know, they, they're wanting to take in, they've said they want to take in 800,000 of these refugees. And I, I think a lot of that is driven by compassion. But Germany has um, one of the lowest birth rates in the world, and the ratio of workers to retirees is declining to levels that really put into risk 
their uh, national pension system. So there may be some other motivation for their wanting to bring in 800,000 new workers. So, so again, this, this is what actually increases and, uh, and, and provides uh, much, much economic benefit. So, um, there's one other thing we'll share with you. I won't go into the details, but Lisa Sherman Nicholas had shared with, with, with us a 42-page report on the specific positive economic impacts, positive contributions that immigrants are making to the state of Tennessee. In fact, I'll send you a link where you can ask about this. A study was done for all 50 of the states. So I'll put that in the, uh, the class notes as well. So the bottom line to me on, on both of these issues, terrorism, economic concerns, uh, is this. Are we as Christians going to adopt um, an attitude of fear or one of trust? And then are, when we think about the trust, are we called to put our trust in a God of scarcity where we have to be worried about economic concerns or a God of abundance. Okay, lots of lots of cover in a minute, so bear with me here. Xenophobia, of course, um, as I understand it, is an actual diagnosis. So I hate that it's become a political term because I'm sure there are people out there who actually suffer from the fear of strangers, but um, it's a big one, I think. Uh, we want to consider not invalidating people's fears. I mean, it's, there, there's some legitimate questions that I think people are asking. Are, are we naive to accept refugees? Are we being imprudent here? Are there real dangers uh, involved? Um, there's a lot of challenges to multiculturalism that um, you know, small towns particularly face. Uh, do we run the risk of losing our cultural identity? A lot of folks might ask. Um, I'm not saying that's a good question, but it is a question. Um, are immigrants going to share our American values is a message I keep hearing a lot. I'm not sure what, what, what defenders of that thought might be. Like, what are our American <laughs> values that we're afraid of losing? Um, discrimination? Um, racism? I don't know. So anyway, Matthew chapter 5 was one of the verses that we covered a while back. In terms of a, an undergirding theological basis for welcoming the stranger in the New Testament lens, uh, here Matthew records, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a xenos. The Greek word. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. Um, we see this theme of do not be afraid over and over again in the, in the Old Testament. And then, of course, um, the rabbi in Luke chapter 10 um, builds further bricks on that foundation and this, this notion of go and do likewise. Don't go to the other side of the road. Approach the foreigner, care for the foreigner, give them your animal and all those great things we talked about, I guess, a um, week or two ago. So uh, Matthew Sorens, uh, who, who uh, is the um, chief officer of World Relief, 
has this great quote that I shared with you a few, a few weeks ago. The application of the current refugee crisis is clear. By Jesus' standard, the refugee, really no matter who they are, bottom line, is our neighbor. In the last sentence there, the command of Jesus is to love them. That there may be a risk or cost involved is not relevant to the mandate of love. And so one of the things that kept recurring in, in my research and, and Roger's research is, let's just say all the fears are perfectly founded. How does that change the discussion for Christians? There's risk involved in no matter who you serve, no matter where you go in this world. And we're shielded in a lot of ways from some of the, the madness that we see in the world, some of the evils that we see in the world. But um, if that chaos were here in this time, in this day and age, our mandate really wouldn't change. So I would suggest that as New Testament people, that we equip ourselves and that we train our minds to welcome the stranger and care for the stranger and see the risk, actually acknowledge the risk, but continue anyway. Um, I think it was Trump Jr. that got into some uh, you know, real hot water with, the, with his comments on Skittles. Did you guys catch this? Um, you know, a very flippant comment about this bowl full of Skittles, 100, 100 Skittles in the bowl, suppose three of them were poisonous and they would kill you. You know, would you eat the Skittles? Well, no. Um, and of course, the backlash from the pro-refugee, pro-immigration community was immense. <laughs> Uh, these aren't Skittles, these are people, right? These are families with children who are in need, they're escaping persecution, they're escaping real fears in their country. Uh, and so I was happy to see uh, sort of the, the response from that, just bringing it back out of this abstract discussion into this real people kind of discussion. Uh, I would encourage us to continue to allow our identity as aliens and exiles shape our view of the refugee uh, situation, particularly as, as we welcome strangers here in Nashville. Um, Peter, Paul, the Hebrew writer, Jesus, all through the New Testament, were reminded of this idea that, hey, your home is elsewhere. Your citizenship is elsewhere. And so you should, of all people, relate to the alien, to the stranger, to the exile. Um, Peter says here, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. That is this physical thing, this temporal world, all the things that you see around us, the circumstances, those aren't yours. Yours are these, right? And so there's this separation of, of worlds, the separation of citizenship, the separation of whose kingdom uh, are you a part of. A great reminder, just a, a paradigm, I think, for Christians uh, living in 2016. Uh, Rabbi Daniel Bogard, um, unknown, but just somebody I came across had this amazing quote, history is moving in one of two directions. It's including more and more people in the project us, or it's including more and more people in the project them. And I thought that is just great wisdom uh, for today's... Yes, uh, history is moving in one of two directions including more and more people in the project of us or including more and more people in the project of them. And it's a matter of inclusion or exclusion. I think we, uh, our flesh wants to exclude. We want to circle the wagons and protect our, our identity, protect our citizenship, protect our freedoms and our rights and our culture and our identity. But as we see those things, quote unquote, eroding, you know, our fears, our fears take over and we want to exclude. And so, um, you know, I think the kingdom principle is one of inclusion. It's, it's one of embrace. 
Uh, and Miroslav Volf, maybe some of you are familiar with his book, uh, Exclusion or Embrace, fantastic um, resource from, from someone who, who I guess um, gives, gives uh, sort of the metaphor of the embrace uh, for understanding from a Christ perspective what it looks like to include people who are other, people who are on the outside, people who are different from us. Um, you know, maybe we're, one thing we're afraid to talk about is this undercurrent that's really present. I don't think it's predominant in our culture, but there's overt expressions and there's subconscious expressions of cultural superiority. We see that, right? And so there is this uh, belief that people of European descent are just better, are, are smarter, are more, or whatever. Uh, Pat Buchanan, who was a presidential uh, candidate some years ago, uh, is, a, is a prime example of somebody who advocated for harsh restrictions on immigration because he believes that the cultures descended from the original European settlers of North America are superior and are now being contaminated by third world, third world culture, cultures whose people he considers unlikely to assimilate in the United States. It, it was a column he wrote many years ago, but his, his um, rhetoric really didn't change in the decades that followed. Um, there's a, a link I'm going to send you in the week, uh, in this week's notes, and may, maybe some of you have seen it, but it's called the Doll Test. Have you guys seen this video floating around? It's um, basically a psychology sort of test with children, and they have dolls of different color, and they put the dolls in front of the children, and they, they test their sense of uh, cultural norms, and uh, invariably, the children were, were assigning uh, guilt and, and um, negative things to the, the dolls of color. And those were representatives of evil or bad choices or, or things to be scared of. And so it's an interesting study that was done. I'll, I'll share that link with you. So uh, all of us, for many different reasons, uh, subconscious or through cultural norms, have, have fear of strangers, fear of others. And so I think we have to fight that urge and, that, that, and resist that uh, very natural thing, I think, that pops up in our hearts and minds um, because of our call in Christ. Uh, quickly, we're almost out of time. Uh, Islam is a huge one. I wish we had more time, but this threat of a, another religion taking such root here in the United States is a source of fear for many people. Um, I want to share a couple of quick stories, and this is a great publication that comes from uh, Lisa Sherman Nicholas's organization, the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition. She works there. She's going to share one week in this class and talk specifically about immigration policy. But this is um, an excellent resource that they put out, and um, it, it speaks, of course, directly to Tennessee and some of the things that we're facing. I think 2005 was the first... Uh, public or rather documented case of, of Islamophobia happening. It was a desecration of a Quran book. Um, it was, I won't even tell you what all was done to it. It was grotesque and it was left in an apartment at the door of an apartment complex and here in Nashville uh, drew a lot of national attention. In 2008, um, the Islamic Center of Columbia was destroyed in, in an act of uh, terrorism. It was a Molotov cocktail. Explosives destroyed the entire center. That was highly publicized. That was right here, 50 miles south of Nashville. But as you saw from the propaganda video and the many things that the media does, 
there's this sensationalism that, that goes along with Islamophobia and it, it really perpetuates fears and it perpetuates hatred. Uh, in February of 2010, and I'll show you this picture. Uh, well, let me back up. This was actually uh, posted by the Coffee County um, County Commissioner, Barry West. And uh, just a humiliating uh, expression for, for a Tennessee, and it's just so, so sad to me. This is, um, this is uh, the story I want to share with you here. So um, CBS did an expose on a small Muslim community in Dover, Tennessee. And uh, some of you might remember this, but it was called Inside Isla Islamville. And it was, um, they used provocative hooks like, are residents really terrorists? Tune in tomorrow to find out. So the damage was done, this quite peaceful community, mostly U.S.-born Muslims, um, members of their Islamic center, a mosque serving mostly Somali refugees, arrived one morning to find this spray painted across their facility. Um, it, in other pictures, you can find surface of local community people helping them remove or paint over these words, which I, which I thought was fantastic. But um, the show uh, halted um, many uh, proposed mosques that were already in, in you know, government municipalities uh, that were in building stages, planning stages. One was halted here in Brentwood. Uh, one was halted in Antioch by a petition and then another uh, halted by down, you know, just outright vandalism in Murfreesboro. So it had a, it had a lasting ripple effect, um, all based on what, what Muslims might do to our communities. Uh, we're about out of time, shoot. Uh, here are some numbers that I wanted to, to well, let's talk about stereotypes. Number one, we, Christians have our own stereotypes, right? Uh, things that we're not proud of. And I, I do think this conversation needs to be a little bit of a bell curve. There are extremes of any ideology that you can find in the world, right? And we have our own extremes. Um, this is, of course, the famous Westboro Baptist Church that, that does horrible, unspeakable things in the name of, of New Testament Christianity. Uh, we have our extremes, and uh, as does any, any group. Now, I, what I, well, I'm out of time. Uh, we'll, we'll have to come back to this next week in our review. Here's, here's some quick numbers that I think are important. From the Middle East, right? From folks being resettled from the Middle East, 168,000 admitted over the last roughly 10 years. 61% uh, of them are women and children under 14. So this decries the notion or the stereotype that all these men, all these refugees are, are middle-aged, like uh, military-grade men coming into our country. That's just, that's just not true. Uh, these are what the statistics show. Over the last 10 years, about 193,000 are Muslim in faith. This is from Middle East. Um, 291,000 of those are Christian people because they're the ones who might be seeing persecution. Uh, so uh, th these are interesting statistics to me. Um, we'll, we'll kind of touch back on some of these things again next week because I know I'm rushing through some of the, uh, the ideas here, uh, particularly surrounding Islam. I want to share this video as we close. This is really, really moving. A young girl from Damascus is, is part of a family who've been resettled in Detroit, and uh, just an excellent depiction of 
uh, all the positive things that could come out of a healthy resettlement program. Yes. I can run outside without being 